Good morning. Would you uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 11? We've been uh, sometime in Genesis, if you've noticed, uh, and if you've been here, you've noticed. Uh, it's our last uh, week in the sermon series we're calling I Want, and uh, if you've been here, um, then you'll recall that what we're looking at are those times in people's lives, in our lives as people of God, where, um, go figure, uh, I want or we want something other than what God wants or what God wants for us. And um, I think by now all of us recognize that that happens to each of us at least sometime. If you're like me, uh, it happens uh, every moment of every day, basically, where um, I wrestle with uh, what I want versus what God wants. You know, I was talking with someone before the service, and what came up was this issue of uh, what defines a Christian life. And uh, some places will teach, or sometimes the church, unfortunately, will make us feel that, you know what defines a Christian? A Christian life is marked by righteousness. God, that sounds good. And by righteousness, we mean a Christian life is marked by perfection. Sometimes we feel righteousness means. But you know what? That's not quite right. My answer to what Christian life is defined by, if you are a Christian, then your life is characterized by an all-out, best-effort fight against sin. Knowing that once in a while you'll fail. Knowing that when you fail, God is right there with you to hold you up and to pick you up again and to dust you off and to say, hey, let's, let's try again, you and I, shall we? And so the pressure to be perfect that some preachers on obedience tend to at least make me feel when I hear them, it's really not there in the Bible. We don't have to be perfect uh, because Jesus was, amen? And so we've been looking at some of these um, lives uh, and stories in early Genesis. Uh, because they're so old, uh, sometimes they seem like a little bit stranger stories. They're, they're written differently. It's older Hebrew dialect. Uh, there's this uh, myth quality to how they're written. But we've been looking at these people to in the hopes that we can relate to what they're going through when, uh, in their stories, they're wanting something that God doesn't want or God doesn't want for them. And so we've looked at Adam and Eve. We've looked at Cain and Abel. Last two weeks we looked at Noah and the flood. And this week I want to look at a real famous story. I bet uh, most of you, if not all of you, have heard it, even if you've never read the Bible. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, some say Babel, some say Babel. It's uh, like tomato-tomato, right? It's um, still a red fruit, vegetable. I don't know. <laughs> Let's jump uh, right into the story this morning, shall we? As recorded in Genesis chapter 11, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Everyone on earth had the same language and the same words. Can you imagine? And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a valley in the land of Shinar, and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and burn them hard. Bricks served them as stone, and bitumen served them as mortar. 
And they said, come, let's build a city and a tower with its top in the sky to make a name for ourselves, else we shall be scattered all over the world. The Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that man had built. And the Lord said, if as one people in one language for all, this is how they've begun to act, then nothing that they may propose to do will be out of their reach. Let us then go down and confuse their speech there, so they shall not understand one another's speech. Thus the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the speech of the whole earth. There's a little Hebrew wordplay going on there. Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused speech, uh, Bilal. So uh, the author is um, teasing uh, the people a bit um, that built uh, this Tower of Babel uh, because the Lord confused the speech of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So what's the deal, do you think, in this story? with uh, this city and uh, especially this tower that the people were trying to build. Uh, what's wrong with building a tower or a city? Uh, is that sin? Well, to get at that, uh, at least some background. Um, uh, Babel uh, is the Hebrew name for Babylon. I found that uh, some uh, don't know that. I only discovered that recently. I, so in English, it's the Tower of Babylon. And in those days, it was common uh, for a city to build a tower, uh, a tower known as a ziggurat. Go ahead, it's fun to say, say ziggurat. How many of you have ever said the word ziggurat before? See, look at what you got to do this morning in church, a ziggurat. Say, what's a ziggurat? Well, it's a tower. It says, no. Um, a ziggurat is a special kind of tower. It's a tower that's built as part of a holy place or a temple complex. Um, and um, not every city would have one of these uh, uh, temple complex towers or temple towers, but uh, most city did. Most cities did. Uh, so far, uh, archaeologists had unearthed about 30 of these things, at least their remains, and um, most of them, interestingly enough, are found in the exact same region, that valley of Shinar, Babylonia, modern-day Iran or Iraq. Uh, most of those have been found there, the same place um, where the Tower of Babel is found. Here you see a picture uh, of the remains of one ancient ziggurat. Um, you can see what time has done to those um, um, uh, oven-baked bricks that they use because they didn't have much stone. Here's another picture. Uh, I think that might be the same one from a different angle much earlier, as you can tell by the black and white photograph. And then here's one, uh, it's more recent. Um, still very old, but um, 
Um, I wanted you to see it, and I don't know if it shows up on the slide, but the lower left corner of the slide, I think the lights are a little too bright, there's this little white, uh, a little guy with a white shirt. And it just gives you an idea of just how massive and how huge these ziggurats were. And I think I got uh, one more picture of a smaller one. Um, that one is much more, um, much less old, but it gives you an idea of what it looked like when this thing was together. Uh, uh, one more slide will give you an archaeologist's picture, uh, at least a drawing based on them examining um, what they can find, uh, of what um, a ziggurat, a tower, would look like in the days of the, around the time of Genesis 11 and the Tower uh, of Babel. Um, if indeed the Bible is referring to the ziggurat of Babylon, um, which even after the people left in Genesis 11, um, um, kings and nations that came into their area afterward built upon its base and tried to keep it going. Uh, if it's that one, and most think it is, then the tower that we're talking about in Genesis 11 uh, was seven stories high um, and uh, 300 feet tall. Um, a, a big one, one of the most famous uh, ever. Uh, the Tower of Babel is almost certainly square, uh, building uh, in the round or round structures, incredibly uh, difficult. Uh, we don't find big round buildings until much later in history, not really until Roman times. And then there were ramps uh, that would give you up to each uh, level, each level um, of the seven levels just receding a bit um, uh, until you got uh, uh, to the top. And ramps would give you access to each level. The ziggurat uh, at Babylon uh, in Genesis uh, 11, um, like I said, one of the largest, most famous of all. And why am I telling you all this about ziggurat? Well, they were made on purpose to look like mountains. Because mountains in the ancient mind was where they thought the gods lived. You can even think of Greek mythology and Mount Olympus, uh, if you like. But those were high places where the gods lived. And so the idea was you establish this city, you build this ziggurat, you put a temple or a sanctuary on the very top, and that makes it easier and more inviting for the god or the gods to come and visit. Babel, in fact, means gate of the god inviting, hoping that uh, God will come. Ancient sources uh, talk about ziggurats as people's attempt uh, to connect uh, earth to heaven, at least in symbol. Uh, historians write about them as being, um, a ziggurat being the navel uh, of the world, uh, its belly button, if you will, uh, in which nourishment would come down into the earth and, and into the cities. Um, uh, through this ziggurat, I guess if they're belly buttons, they would—they must have all had Audi belly buttons, I guess. And so all of this to say, it shouldn't—it uh, wouldn't have come to a—it uh, uh, wouldn't have been a surprise for the original readers or hearers of the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11 
knowing that a ziggurat was made to invite the gods to come down, that in fact in Genesis 11, God comes down. That's what the purpose of the tower was. But what did surprise them, what they were not planning on, was that God would come down and be displeased by what he saw. And what was it exactly, do you think, that displeased God? What didn't he like? Does he have something against towers? Maybe even a tower built for the purpose of inviting him to, uh, to come? Well, a couple of answers to what displeased God. You see it in that, uh, uh, those uh, verses in Genesis 11, 11 verse 4 in particular. God had said, remember, to his people, go and fill the earth. But then we get to Genesis 11 and we read where they said, nah, let's build this massive tower instead to, to make a name for ourselves and, and stay all together here. So those two things really are going here on here that God didn't like. They intended to all stay together in one place, and they wanted to make a name for themselves by building this ziggurat. And it's that second one about making a name for themselves that I want to um, focus on uh, more this morning with you in the time we have left. Let's do this, those people said so that we can make a name for ourselves, so that the world will know about us. Let's build this ziggurat to make ourselves known. Now, there's a very revealing wordplay going on here in Hebrew that helps us illustrate this part of why God is upset. And it's all about that word Shem. Go ahead and say Shem. It's not as fun as ziggurat, but there you have it, Shem. Now, Shem is Noah's son, but his name is also the Hebrew word for name. It's like, what's your name? Name. Shem. And it's name in terms of uh, fame uh, or recognition, um, um, renown or um, credit. And it's interesting because right after the list of Shem's ancestors in the chapter before Genesis 10, right after the list of names descendants in Genesis 10, there's this story about a people who want to make a Shem a name for themselves. And let's pause there uh, a moment. Do you ever... Do you ever crave recognition? Do you ever feel that tug or that pull? Boy, I wish I were famous. I want to be known. I want to leave a mark so people know about me. I want to receive the, the credit for something I've done. Do you ever feel that? I think if you're human, if you haven't felt it yet, you will at some point. This feeling of, I deserve credit or recognition. Are there any Seinfeld fans out there? Okay, a few of you left. Um, the thing I loved about the show Seinfeld, as most good comedy does, 
it gives us insight, really good insight into some aspects of human nature. And boy, did that show ever. George and Elaine are two friends in the show. Elaine comes and asks George, hey George, I want you to buy me, go to the restaurant and get me a big salad. You guys remember that episode? Yeah, see, a few of you do. And George says, oh, you want a big salad? Fine, well, go get you a big salad. So he goes to the restaurant without Elaine to get Elaine this big salad, but his girlfriend's with him, and she takes the big salad that George buys. And later, George's girlfriend gives the big salad to Elaine, and Elaine says, oh, thank you, Susan, for the big salad. And Susan says, oh, you're so welcome. Here's your big salad. George, meanwhile, is watching this go on, and he is just, as George Costanza can do, just visibly upset. And why is he upset? Because Susan is taking all the credit, recognition. She's getting all the shim for buying Elaine the big salad. And this just really upsets him. Because after all, he says, I bought the big salad. I ought to get credit for buying the big salad. Do you ever feel like you ought to get credit for buying a big salad? <laughs> or whatever the big salad is in your life that you did? I think it's human um, to want to be known. To want to receive the credit. But here's the thing. You might even guess uh, what God wants. What I want is to be known, but here's what God wants. God wants to be known. And that can come into conflict. So what now? What happens when this happens according to our story? Well, the very next story in Genesis 11, it's another line of descendants. And it's the list of the descendants of Shem. This is the line of Shem. The list culminates in Abram, and then the very next story in Genesis 12 is God goes and finds Abram, who's the 10th generation from a guy whose name means fame and renown, and just look at what God says to Abram. He says, I will make your Shem great. And if you're still with me, look at how this tracks through Genesis 10, 11, and 12. Genesis 10, Noah has this son named Shem. Genesis 11, there's this group of people who want to make a Shem for themselves, and God comes down and says, no. Later on in Genesis 11, there's these descendants of the name Shem, and then God comes in Genesis 12 and says, I will make your name great. It isn't for us to make our name great. And why do you suppose God wants to make his name great? Just because he's some sort of hog for acclaim and greatness and no 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 
Is it because God wants credit for getting the big salad? No. God wants to make your name great so that people will know God through you. And we don't have to worry about making our name great because God will do it for us. Now, my tendency, like I've said, if you're like me, uh, like the Tower of Babel folks, is, you know what, I want to be known. But like I've said, God wants to be known. But here's the rest of the story. God wants to be known through me. He wants to be known through you. And he will make our name great. Why? So that he can be known through us. And to me, that's one of the lessons, at least, that shouts from this Genesis 10, 11, and 12 story with the Tower of Babel story in between. It says, don't be after making your own name known. Don't live your life so that the world may know there is a you. Instead, let God make your name great, and he will if we obey. He'll make your name great when we love God and love others and humble ourselves. And he will make you known so that the world knows him through you. And oh, there are so many examples of this in Scripture. It springs from one of the earliest ones here, maybe the earliest one in Genesis 11. But see if you can, uh, I've got a few of them on the screen, so now you get to participate. See if you can name the Bible story. This one I think is, I hope this is an easier one. Today I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Who said that? David. Very good. Who's he facing? Goliath. Goliath. So David says, I'm going to defeat you, Goliath. And then David says, his motivation is, and the whole world will know that I am David the giant slayer. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. He didn't do it so the world would know there's a David. He did it, why? So the world will know there is a God. And in response to that motivation, in response to building that sort of ziggurat in your life, inviting God into it, with the motivation that the world would know, what does God do? Somehow that stone finds its way to embed itself in Goliath's skull. Boom! Down he goes so that the world may know there's a God. How about another one? At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that I am the most awesome prophet. No. What's the story? Shout it out. Dare to be wrong. I still can't hear What's that? Yes, it's the contest on top of Mount Carmel, remember? 850 prophetesses and prophets of Baal build their thing. They pray to Baal, please, Baal, burn it up. Nothing. Elijah comes next. 
What do you suppose would happen if Elijah had simply prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, show these people that I'm really something, send fire. Maybe because God is gracious, he would have done it anyway, but there it is again. Live our lives doing great things. How great would that have been? So jealous of Elijah. How many times in your life do you wish, I mean, you just play that out. I used to play that out as a kid. How cool would that be? 850 people go and they fail. I get to go up there all alone. I have them get the whole thing soaking wet. And then I step forward and say, oh Lord, please send fire so the world will know there's a God. What happens next? Boom! Fire from heaven. How cool would that be? So jealous of Elijah. What a moment. And God made Elijah great because of the humility that he had, the guts that he had, because he lived his life building ziggurats with the motivation that the world would know there's a God. How about another one? This one's a little harder. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that I am an awesome king. No, it doesn't say that. Who said that? Not Moses. Nobody knows. Not Saul, not Joseph. Some of you, I hear Bibles going, pfft, 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 pfft. <laughs> the apps are going clicker. Boop, 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 boop. I heard it. Hezekiah. Remember the story. Obviously, maybe we don't. <laughs> People ask me, because I spend a lot of time uh, with Jews. Um, that don't believe Jesus is Messiah. And they ask me, um, fellow Christians ask me of those Jews, how on earth can those Jews not believe that Jesus is Messiah? It's so obvious. Well, a Jewish person is taught that the way you know your rabbi is look at their disciples. And so the Jews are looking at us. And one thing a Jewish rabbi did, he memorized the text, knew every story forward and backward. And so every time I don't know the text, I witness to a Jewish person that Jesus isn't Messiah. That brought new motivation in life to me in wanting to memorize and know this book. But anyway, back to the story. Hezekiah is in Jerusalem, right? And the Assyrian army has them surrounded. And he goes into the temple and he prays to God. He doesn't pray, Lord, we're going to die here. Please save us because I don't want to die. He could have prayed that. Maybe should have. I would have. And he doesn't pray, oh, Father, help us defeat this Sennacherib king of Assyria. 
so that everyone will know about Israel and everybody will know about me, King Hezekiah, because I want my... He does it again. Deliver us. Why? So that everyone may know that you are God. There it is again. Building ziggurats living our life's purpose, whatever it is that we do or are involved in, not so the world may know there's a me, but so the world may know there's a God. And when we do that, you know what happens? A stone hits a giant that can't be beaten, and he falls down in worship. Lightning comes from the sky and burns up a wet, doused altar. And in this case, 186,000 of Assyrians' army die overnight, mysteriously. Why? Because one of God's people humbled himself to live his life, not so the world would know there's a him, but so the world would know there's a God. Go ahead, Grace. Let's see the next one. From Isaiah. It's another way to look at it. It's all over the Bible. You, God says to us, you are my witnesses. You're not here to witness who you are. You're here. We're here to witness who I am, God says. Why? To show them that I am God. How about the New Testament? Jesus, just before he leaves, remember, you will be my witnesses. Why? To show people how great you are? Well, no. To the ends of the earth, to show who Jesus is. Peter gets in on it. He puts it this way. Next slide, please. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and give you lots of money and think you're really great people. No. <laughs> they may see your good deeds and glorify who? You glorify God. There it is again. Building our ziggurats. Whatever it is that God has given us to do in life. Not so the world may know there's a me, but so the world may know there is a God. And we have to let Paul chime in. Paul puts it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. There is no me anymore to show. I'm gone in, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Instead, I'm not even the one living. But it's Christ. It's in the Shem of Christ, the name of Christ, that I live. That's what he means. When he lives, people see Jesus. Why? Because he didn't live to show the world that there's this amazing Apostle Paul. God made his name great. Not because he set out to make it great. But he humbled himself enough to live his life and everything he did to put it on the line. So that the world would know there is a God. And so the question is, West Bowles, will you and I do the same? I mean, I don't know if you noticed, I certainly thought it when I was looking at those pictures of ancient ziggurat. I drove into the, uh, the driveway this morning and took a look at this structure. <laughs> Looks a lot like a ziggurat. <laughs> Only there are no ramps to the roof, because if we had ramps to the roof, 
all those teens would go up on the roof all the time. And you still go up there. We know. There is a ramp, but it's locked. So, Is this a ziggurat? Well, it has a religious purpose. We invite God into our midst each and every time we're here, don't we? Is there anything wrong with a tower or a ziggurat or inviting God into a place? Hint, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But what's our motivation? Is it to show the world that we are West Bulls? Uh Uh-oh, well, I I still like the video series. This is different. (laughs) I really didn't mean to step on that. And that's different. But do we live our lives to show, do we uh, function as a church, a body of Christ, because we want West Bowls on the map? Or is our motivation for all that goes on here, is our motivation in humility and in service so that the world will know through us God. And if we're not doing that, chances are we're doing something like those folks did in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. Yeah, we know God said to reach the world, to fill the earth. But you know what? We kind of like our ziggurat. Maybe we'll just build this awesome place with this awesome facility and we'll just stay here. careful. Last time a people did that, God came down and scattered them so they would fill the world and hopefully in that humbling moment would learn to live their lives not to make themselves known, but to make sure God is known. How about in your personal lives? What ziggurats do you have in your life that you're building? Your work and what you accomplish there? Your home, your family, whatever your talent or skill is? And not that there's anything wrong with those things. You're supposed to accomplish. You're supposed to do great things. But our motivation can't be so the world knows there's a Todd needs to be so the world knows there's a God. That works, it rhymes. What's your motivation for living your life? You know, one of the very first sermons that I preached when I came here eight years ago, some of you still remember it because I bump into you sometimes in Albertsons or King Supers. I encouraged you for a whole week, remember, to go through your weekly life wherever you went and whatever you did, holding up your finger in the air. Uh, the correct finger in the air. <laughs> and for a week, I tried that too. I remember <laughs> I went to the post office, got out of the car, I was walking in the post office, and I thought, well, I challenged them to walk around like this, so I better do it too. So I went like this into the post office. <laughs> People are like, they gave me room. That's that pastor at West Bowles. We knew there was something wrong with him. 
Every day, every moment when you wake up in the morning, does it, does it cross your mind? Why are you living this day? Is it to see what you can do for you? Or is it in everything you do, in everyone you meet, in every conversation, in every look, in every act, in every thought, all you can in humility laying yourself aside Boy, I want to be used this day, God, please, for you to show others through me who you are. And by the way, when we do that, your name, our name, will be great. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is no name, no Shem greater in heaven and on earth than yours. And Father, we stand humbled and amazed that such a great God, great beyond our comprehension, would himself in humility and in love want to reach the world, renew the world through us. And Father, you know, often standing in the way of you doing that, ironically, is us and our desire to live life for me. Oh, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the fellowship of this community and the accountability that we can find here, would you help us to lower that pride, lower that desire to make our own name great so that you can make our name great through our humility and reach the world through us. Showing the world that indeed you are great. Father, we love you. Just pray this in Jesus' precious Shem, in his precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Got a song to close us this morning uh, in benediction. Um, reflect on its words, even as you listen, as you sing along, and ask yourself um, with your ziggurats that you're building today, why are you building them? Is it to make your name great or to show the world that God's name is great?